Today's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 25, through uh, chapter 13, verse 5. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. And if you notice, Matali's voice was on the trailer and in the reading of the scripture, and that's very intentional. Uh, because during our middle hour, right after the service, uh, Brian Kay is hosting a conversation with Matali, who's a uh, well-regarded author uh, entitled Stories of an Unlikely Convert. So that's right over there in the parlor. So grab some coffee when we're done and head over that way. It should be a really awesome hour. I'm excited personally to take part in it. Um, well, after Easter Sunday, you're watching a series trailer and you're jumping into a book of Acts, and you may feel like, are we back to our regularly scheduled programming already in progress? Uh, so let me just say this to you this morning. The centerpiece of Christianity is the resurrection. In fact, uh, I hope you'll never feel like we just sort of tuck Jesus back into the tomb and bring him out every Easter. Um, this past Friday, I was sitting in uh, the Oakmont Cemetery with a good friend of mine. We're sitting on the grass by the grave marker of his 16-year-old son who passed this November, this last November of leukemia. And we were sharing a conversation and sharing some tears. And he said, uh, Sung Yun, who's his wife, Sung Yun and I keep leaning into the resurrection hope that because Jesus was raised, we will all be raised, and I will see our boy again, and we will delight together in the presence of the Lord. So if you're exploring Christianity, as Tommy said, if you're sort of checking out WCPC, uh, please know that that is our belief. It's the conviction, this ultimate hope that we have in this life, is that Jesus is raised so that we will be raised ultimately into the next one. So this past Holy Week, we were in Luke's Gospel. We spent uh, four sessions there together. But before that, we were in the book of Acts. And you may not know this, the book of Acts was actually also written by Luke. So Luke, the Gospel, is sort of telling the story of Jesus. And the book of Acts is telling the story of the church. And we're entitling this series, The Great Revolution of Prayer. So some of you were here prior to Easter, so you know we've been walking through each prayer in the book of Acts. And for our regulars, you may be thinking, thinking to yourself, back to prayer, yikes. And if you're new with us this past Easter and here you are at week two, you may be thinking, we're talking about prayer, yikes. That's because most people, what we share in common is if we have a prayer life, we all think that it 
stinks. So uh, I am wanting to invite you into a different kind of life, and I want to illustrate that this morning. Uh, I was reminded this past week that it was a couple years ago, just before the pandemic, that I was with my family in Yosemite, and we went on this amazing hike, and after a long day of hiking, we went to the grill right in the valley floor, and we bought cheeseburgers and french fries, and we sat down to eat them together, and on the table was this little sign that I took a picture of, and I'll read the inscription to you. It says, why is it bad to feed the animals? Eating human food is not healthy for wildlife as their bodies do not adjust well to the salt, fat, and preservatives often found in our food. They gain weight, lose hair, and become dependent on human food. In addition, predators such as mountain lions are attracted to areas with concentrations of well-fed squirrels and raccoons. So when I read this as I was eating my cheeseburger and my french fries, I had Three thoughts. This is hilarious, this is ironic, and this is poignant. It's hilarious because eating human food full of salt, fat, and preservatives causes animals to gain weight, lose their hair, and become dependent on said food. And by the way, we are animals, hilariously. It's ironic because you can't really see it, but the blurred sign at the bottom says that this is brought to you by the Coca-Cola company who has infused our water with sugar for a hundred years, right? And it's poignant because we learn here that fear is obviously a better motivator than altruism. Because the first version of the sign probably said, now that you know what it does to them, be kind to the squirrels by not feeding them. But that didn't work, so they added the bottom sentence. Don't make them fat because then predators such as mountain lions will come and eat you. So what does that say about prayer, you may be asking? Well, a couple things. One, much stuff goes into our lives, which in moderation is not so bad, right? But sometimes as we consume it, it begins to consume us. So what is queued up or lined up in your life, and I'm using that word intentionally because we have Netflix and Apple TV and Disney Plus and Hulu and Paramount and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the rest, like with taste, like my French fries being designed with umami or what is called the long hang time flavor so that I can't just eat one or 50, like those French fries, what is lined up in our life is neurologically engineered to get me to what's next in line in my life, never allowing me to get all the way through the line. So You see this with Netflix, right? Next show will start in five, four, three, two, one. We can't put it down. But prayer, like piano, like distance running, like golf, like woodworking, it only brings satisfaction and contentment when we've practiced it over and over and over again, daily, weekly, monthly. Then all of a sudden, you can't live without it. There's nothing wrong with the cheeseburger. There's nothing wrong with the cereal show. But it must be conditioned by other habits. The second thing this sign teaches me about prayer is that fear or guilt as motivators, while they may work on that sign just while I'm sitting at the table there, 
are not lasting motivators. And so I'm hoping not to compel you by fear or guilt this morning when it comes to prayer, but to a, a grander vision of becoming a greater version of yourself with God. So I've gotten to know some of you, having been here a couple years now, and it's amazing. Some of you have these dynamic prayer lives, and I experience when I'm around you a peace with God, truly, a patience with one another, a, a poise around yourself. It's a beautiful life. So today we're going to talk about prayers of commission. And when I named that a couple months ago, I'm asking myself today, why am I even calling it that? That's such a weird word, but let me break it down for you for a second. Calm is a prefix which means with, and mission, of course, is purpose, expedition, quest, assignment. So I may say it this way, commission is joining with others around a shared purpose. Joining with others around a shared purpose. And so prayers of commission would be talking to God about how we might join with others around a shared purpose. So again, this is an invitation to you, if you'll allow it to be, into a new kind of life. A life of joining with others around a shared purpose. And one way to do that is to be regularly praying for one another. So what do these prayers of commission look like? How do we talk to God about joining together with others around a common mission or purpose? Well, um, I want to sort of break this down in in three aspects or three movements as we look at this text. Uh, One of them is setting and characters. Second is commission and vocation. And third one is Holy Spirit and discernment. So I want to look at these three aspects, setting and characters, commission and vocation, Holy Spirit and discernment. So the setting. We are now moving in the book of Acts to this city called Antioch. So Barnabas and Paul, they've been in Jerusalem because they were handing over a famine relief offering to the church in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch, and they've come back to to Antioch. And you must know that Jerusalem was the center of the, the birth of the church. So Jesus, when he gave his commendation at the beginning of Acts, he says, you to the church, you're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit fills you, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so the beachhead for Judea and Samaria was Jerusalem, but now we've moved to Antioch, which is the beachhead for the rest of the world. And you should know about Antioch, it was a big city. It was incredibly cosmopolitan. It was eminently diverse. It was a a trade route. It was an intersection. And I say that because sometimes when we look at Scripture or you look at history, you may hear the word pagan and you may think, well, yeah, those are people that are in opposition to God or those are the non-believers. But in Greek, the word paganus actually means a country bumpkin, someone from the sticks. You know, someone who uh, isn't open to new ideas. Why am I telling you this? Because the church was birthed in all of these metropolitan areas because these Christians were open to new ideas. And Jesus, the resurrected Lord, was a new idea. And they were contending with that in Antioch. We see the setting. Let's look at the characters for just a second. The five of them that are mentioned to us, six really, we'll get to the sixth one at the end, are multi-generational. They're multi-ethnic. They're multicultural. They reflect the cosmopolitan nature of Antioch. So we have Barnabas, firstly, mentioned as a Levite from Cyprus. So Levite means he was connected to the ancient priesthood of Israel, but he was a part of the Jewish diaspora. He grew up in Cyprus. You have Simeon, that's the Hebrew name, called Niger, which means black, which means he's presumably from 
Niger. He could be Simon of Cyrene, who was called to carry the cross. We're not sure about this. And, and I'm not sure I need to say this, but if you're here this morning and you're getting hung up on his name that corresponds to, to melanin or, or, or a tone of skin, you, it, it would be important for you to know, get this, there was no such thing as racism in the Bible. It came later, okay? There, there was bigotry for sure, but it, it tended in the Bible to be connected to things like ethnicity and culture and nationalism and religion. So skin color was nothing more than description in that day. Eye color, hair color, stature, things like that. So we have Lucius of Cyrene, also from North Africa, modern-day Libya. We have Menean, who was uh, Jewish in name but was an intimate friend, it says, to Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great, which means this guy grew up in royalty. And we have Saul, whose name was turned by Jesus to Paul, who was this uh, well-credentialed, well-schooled Pharisee. Deep ethnic, cultural, generational diversity in leadership. It's, it's always a summons to the church today to engage in that level of diverse leadership. So that's the setting and the characters. Let's look, second aspect, commission and vocation. So some of you know I work with, with church planters um, once a month on Thursdays. And this past Thursday I was uh, leading a group of church planters talking about preaching. And I was talking about how sometimes in a week the sermon really comes to you quickly, but sometimes it feels like labor and delivery. It feels like you're giving birth. And I was feeling that this week about this particular point until yesterday. I was just confused and struggling. How do I even articulate what's going on here? And, And I broke it down in two ways yesterday and I'll give them to you. One of them This is a particular type of commissioning to a specific church work. So what's happening right here with Paul and Barnabas and the rest is this is a particular type of commissioning to a specific church work. But secondly, it's also a model, I want you to hear this, for any and all sorts of commissionings, for all kinds of work. Let's look at each for a second. This is a particular type of commissioning to a specific church work. That's why in verse 2 it says, they were set apart for the work for which I have called them. And like with Abraham's call in Genesis, they didn't even know where they were going. They knew they were called, that was clear, but they didn't know where they were going. So this response to God's call was an adventurous step. It makes me think of of my own calling to a particular type of church work. When we were called in 2005 to the Bay Area with our one-year-old and four-year-old at the time, and we land at SFO, and we spend $56 we don't have on a cab to take us over to the East Bay uh, because we didn't know anyone. It, It was a very specific call to a particular type of church work. But secondly, for all of us, This is a model for any and all sorts of commissioning to all kinds of work. And and that's where vocation comes in. And I've I've said this before, but if we were having coffee and I was sitting down with you at a coffee shop and you were talking about your job or your career or maybe your calling, I would be inclined to take out a napkin and draw three or four circles and one of them I would label career and one of them I would label church and one of them I would label friendships and family and I would say, All of these things together, these spheres in your life, this is your vocation. They comprise your calling. 
And when we talk about calling, I would say, you know, you have the summons in your calling to, to take up the character of Christ, the faith, the hope, the love that we talked about last week, or as I was talking about prayer earlier, peace and patience and poise. But you should also know in your calling, in your vocation, you are commissioned to ministry and mission. Sometimes that's near, sometimes that's far. Some people are specifically called to transcend borders and boundaries for particular gospel works, and not just preachers. The sixth character here, John Mark, he is the helper. We learn in the book of Colossians that he's actually Barnabas's cousin, and we don't know if he's uh, a culinary artist. We don't know if he's an executive assistant. He's, he's not necessarily a preacher, but he's called far into the work. I had a friend in Atlanta, Patrick, who was a golf pro at the Windermere Golf Club, and he felt like God was calling him to China to become a golf pro in China, to transcend border and boundaries, to bring the gospel there, not as a preacher, but as a golf pro. So every one of us, I don't want you to miss this, is a missionary because every vocation is a mission, and every mission involves cultivating the character of Christ and being commissioned into God's work. And this is what we see in verse 3. They placed their hands on them and sent them off into this mission. When I was a pastor in Berkeley, I used to get so frustrated. Um, on the one hand, I'd have people that would, I would meet in Berkeley and, and they'd say, well, I'm a, I'm a first-year PhD student and I would think to myself, awesome, I've got eight years with you. This is fantastic. <laughs> But then they would leave, and they would leave, and they would leave, and they would leave, and I was so frustrated by it for years until finally, a few years ago, we, we wised up to this, and we started offering prayers of commission in May, where we would have people stand up, and we would send them out toward their task, far and wide, what it was to be called by God as a missionary in their particular vocational sphere. Which leads me to this third and final aspect the Holy Spirit and discernment. Tommy mentioned earlier, some of you online are here exploring who God is, and I say Holy Spirit, and you're already thinking, well, this is getting weird. <laughs> so let me just say for a second, when you get to the question, who is the Holy Spirit, you may back up a second and ask the question, who is God? And you may know that Christians believe in Trinity, and my encouragement to you is before we get too philosophical, start historical. In other words, before we start talking about being and essence and God being two, one to be three and two, three to be one and personhood and Godhood and all of those things which are incredibly important, start with history. And in history, what you find is these people who are monotheists, who experience God, the heavenly Father, as their God, then have to contend with Jesus, who's walking around claiming to be divine as the Son, and then the Holy Spirit starts showing up in the book of Acts, and it's not like in the Hebrew scriptures where it was just sort of a drive-by or a pop-in. It wasn't like 2G or 3G network. It was like Holy Spirit in 5G doing incredible stuff and somehow also divine. Three in one, one in three, Father, Son, Spirit. The Holy Spirit has vocations, we learn in Scripture. The Holy Spirit is an advocate, a counselor, a comforter, and a guide. So as a minister, let me tell you, I get a little skittish and skeptical when people say things to me like, 
God told me to. Or the Holy Spirit directed me. And I'm not saying that this doesn't happen. It does happen. But I am saying it usually takes this last word, collective discernment. So in Antioch, we find people who know how to listen to the Spirit. Did you catch it? They know that for the, for the Spirit, there are these rhythms of worship, teaching and sacrament and community, and at times, fasting. It's rarely an individual saying, God told me to. Particularly in making big decisions. So, so think about the biggest decisions in your life, and maybe some of you are right in the middle of them right now. Do I take this job? Do I change career paths? Do I buy a house or a condo? Do, do we move cities? Is it time to retire? Where am I going to go to college? All of these, these huge decisions in our life, if you really sincerely want to honor God in those huge decisions, you may say something like, I really need to find God's will. Well, my um, mentor in seminary, Bruce Walkey, who is a renowned Hebrew scholar, you can look at most of your English translations and find his name in the credits. He wrote a book entitled Finding the Will of God, and, and this is what he says. He says, Scripture gives no command to find God's will, nor can you find any instructions on how to go about finding God's will. There isn't a magic formula offered to Christians that will open some mysterious door of wonder, allowing us to get a glimpse of the mind of the Almighty. Instead, what we get are passages like this. We get worship, not just music, but coming together around God's Word and God's table with God's people. We get devotion and attention in our daily life to scripture and prayer and meditation and in heightened times like this to fasting. Awaiting the Spirit involves these rhythms, these practices. Otherwise, you're, you're like a boat in the middle of the lake just waiting for God to move you without setting the sails, without doing the things in your life that might allow the Spirit to prompt you in particular directions, especially around big decisions. So, in other words, vocation, commission, calling involves, I think, inward stirrings with outward confirmations. In other words, commission, joining with others around a shared purpose, and prayers of commission, talking to God about joining with others around a shared purpose, takes real relationship. And that's where I would conclude, if I, if I may, for just a moment. Coming out of COVID, we hope, fingers crossed still, prayers offered. <laughs> Coming out of COVID, um, many people in America, and pastors are telling me this too, have taken a very casual and virtual approach to church. And there are many good reasons. Uh, people are online right now with great reasons to be online. And, and uh, we respect those. And, and some of you maybe are exploring church and you need some anonymity and you need to be there virtually and we respect that. But there, there is coming a moment for, for most of us in the church where being casual and virtual will rip us away from the relationships we're called to be in in the context of being the body of Christ. Back to fear and guilt 
Those are not my motivators when I say this. Instead, I'm inviting you, I'm imploring you into a beautiful kind of life that, that takes a collective relationship with one another to discern God's best for us. It's an antidote, isn't it, to life in this world? I mean, think about it for just a second. If you're 7 or 17 or 37 or 77, the the secular project is already having its way with you. And and what I mean by that, um, we we struggle to find meaning, don't we? we? We struggle to find community and relationships, don't we? And what we're promised in this life is freedom to do whatever we want to do and be whoever we want to be. But if you, if you could, it's my last illustration here, if you could imagine for a second a cul-de-sac with three houses at the end of it, each one has a swimming pool, not hard to imagine, probably true of a lot of our neighborhoods, right? But you go to that first house and you go to that swimming pool and there's a placard by the pool and it says, this is the pool of meaning. And you look into that pool and you notice it's like bare bones dry. There's no water in it. And then you go to the second house and you go to the backyard and there's a placard, there's an inscription that says, this is the pool of community and relationships. And there's hardly any water in that pool because we all feel so lonely and isolated and detached. And then you go to the third house, to that third pool, and there's a little placard and it says, this is the pool of freedom. And it's just overflowing with water. And it's this Uh, summons from our culture that says you're free to be whoever you want to be to do whatever you want to do but we know ultimately it is inviting us into a lonely life of pressure and stress and anxiety with the world on our shoulders instead we have this invitation to share together a commissioning to come together as a people not in a lonely isolated way but in the beauty of a common life with a shared mission. So what I want to do as we come to the table is I want to just pray a prayer of commissioning that I wrote over you uh, at WCPC. And if you're able, I want to invite you to just to stand with me. And I'm going to just proverbially, proverbially speaking, uh, lay my hands on you as I pray this prayer. And I'm doing that for those of you online as well as I, as I pray this prayer over us as a church. God of heaven and earth, We pray for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we be a church that invites people into a family of shared meaning and relationship. May our freedom not be a freedom to do whatever we want to do, but a freedom to serve one another in love. Might we celebrate vocation as we regularly commission parents who stay home to care for children, as we commission those who labor in the political common life of this city, those who serve the marketplace of ideas and commerce, those whose creativity nourishes us all, those whose callings take them into the academy, and those who long for employment that satisfies the soul and serves you. For each one in this space, we pray. Give us eyes finally to see that our work is holy to you, O Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.